Second Captains on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. So, is everybody ready for some Mick Lynch on Second Captain Saturday? I know I am. A very excited Owen McDevitt here with Kieran Murphy. Hey, Murph. Hey, Owen. How's it going? Well, I think you know how it's going by the tone of my voice. And judging by the reaction we've had since we announced the identity of today's guest, I think many of you share our excitement today. Welcome to the show, everybody. On the 21st of June this year, the workers of the National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers, the RMT, went on strike over wages and planned changes to working practices. The person charged with articulating their arguments in public was the union's general secretary, Mick Lynch. And by the time he was finished his various media appearances, he'd gone from being... In his own words, an obscure union official to suddenly being one of the most recognisable faces in Britain and potentially the most influential person in the entire Labour movement. He did okay in front of the cameras, Murph. Mm. That's what I'm saying. The report card was largely positive, I think it's fair, fair <laughs> I think to so, assume. yeah. And of course he took down a few high-profile TV presenters who tried to rattle his cage. Are you or are you not a Marxist? Because if you are a Marxist, then you're into revolution. <laughs> Richard, you do come up with the most remarkable twaddle sometimes. I want you to confirm or deny if this is your Facebook page. It's a picture yes, of, Can you a see picture the of the hood from Thunderbirds. Well, I'm just wondering where the comparison goes, because he was obviously <laughs> an evil criminal terrorist mastermind. He's the most evil puppet made out of vinyl in the world. Is that the level your journalism's at these days? I simply asked you if that was you. <laughs> you know what, that 24 hours or so, however long it lasted, that news cycle, was so exciting. It was the most... It's one of the most exhilarating times I've had on social media. Mm. You know, every couple of hours it seemed, oh, hang on, another Mick Lynch clip. No, I've already yeah, seen I've him. I've seen this one. I've, oh, already, wait, no, yeah, this I've seen him do Piers Morgan. Yeah. Oh, no, it's yeah, it, this is another one. I was just making mincemeat of someone or another. I think what struck a chord with people, with me anyway, was just that he was so impressive because he managed to do what he did by talking like a normal human being. We're also used to seeing these adversarial debates now play out in a somewhat predictable way. Everyone has a role, a kind of predetermined role. Everyone knows what they're going to get out of it. So it's just amazing to see what happens when somebody really articulate comes in and makes their argument in a straightforward, no bullshit manner. Being articulate and having self-belief is actually a pretty potent cocktail, it turns out. There's a lot to talk to this man about, including some sport, because football is the reason that Mick is over in Ireland at the moment. All will be revealed in a couple of minutes on that score. Should be enough for a few extra points, as Mick Lynch looks to become the second captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person for 2022. But to be honest, who knows with the shenanigans that you've been up to this season, Murph. Another week, another audience member attacks you for your scoring of our guests' sporting lives. Could have been a contender. Could have been somebody. Uh, yes, well, Billy Craven has been in touch uh, about yeah, last week's guest, uh, William Finnegan. That was the harshest score yet. He's lucky the surf community are so chill, but I still think Murph should steer clear of La Hinch for a while. Uh, <laughs> well, Billy, thank you for your tweet. Yes. I gave William Finnegan only 76 points for narrowly avoiding death on the biggest wave he'd ever seen. Some people might say, geez, Murph, that sounds like a pretty good sporting achievement. To which I would say, surfing isn't really a sport. Come on, let's be honest. Certainly, oh, you weren't saying this when William Finnegan was around. Come on. 
Certainly not a sport like five-a-side football, Nick Hornby, <laughs> or swimming with a seal, Anne Enright, or wearing a camogie helmet, as Maeve Higgins so memorably did in her youth on previous editions of this show. So let's not fool ourselves. Having awesome upper, upper body strength and extraordinary balance and coordination is not a shortcut to success in this game on. Not here. The way to actually get results on this show is to pick your all-time sporting highlight, then I'll pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements, and I'll then present you with a score out of 100 to discover if you can be crowned our top non-sports person sports person for 2022 Nick Hornby currently leads on 83 this season and Enright brings up the rear on 72 where Mick Lynch ends up will no doubt be the subject of much criticism I can handle Hornby's is a score to beat so you can tweet us as always at Second Captains or pop an email to editor at secondcaptains.com what a guest we have for you today Mick Lynch coming up on Second Captains he is in Ireland at the moment to watch his team Cork City play we caught up with him yesterday afternoon and you'll hear the full conversation right after this from the jam. The distant echo of faraway voices bought in faraway trains to take them home to the ones that they love and who love them forever. My life swam around me, it took a look and drowned me in its own existence. The smell of brown leather Even in him with the weather Though my eyes is not a mother Blood to my senses could see it Speaking around Oh now in a two-station of Down at the tube station at midnight by the jam. I think is an appropriate one for our guest today, who has captured the public imagination in the UK and Ireland over the past couple of months for his robust defence of the rights of workers amid rising inflation and the soaring cost of living. As head of the RMT, his compelling media appearances have helped the public to understand the concerns of his members in their ongoing strike action. And he also seems to have tapped into something larger going on in society as more and more people struggle to make ends meet and live in hope of a new way of doing things. Before the latest round of strikes takes place later this week, he is in Ireland where he can try to take his head away from all of that for 90 minutes plus injury time. Mick Lynch, an absolute pleasure having you on the show. How you doing? You all right? Yeah, we're okay. Tell us, where are you talking to us from? I'm right in Cork City, Oliver Plunkett Street. In a, I've just been in a bar called the, uh, what's it called? The Long Valley, which is okay. quite a famous uh, Cork City watering hole. Yeah, It's right in, right in town. And I've just been to the Imperial Hotel to meet some uh, trade union people. Okay, so, I'm, so a I'm bit doing of, a bit of business with a bit of pleasure as well. Going to say, yeah, mixing a bit of work and pleasure. Listen, wh- so tell us about the Cork City connection then. How into Cork City are you? How long have you been supporting them? And and this is Cork City FC now, we as should opposed say, to just, just the city Cork of City. Cork, yeah, or it can be either. <laughs> well, I'm not going to claim I'm the I'm not Mr. Stato about all Cork City's uh, appearances, but because we've got a fondness, my old man was from right in the city uh, way back. He left in 1941 to come over to. Britain to, to get work during the Blitz. So it shows you what Cork must have been like. My mother left uh, Armagh at the same time to, to come over. So um, I've always been fond of Cork City. I do try to follow Cork GAA as much as I can from over there, but we won't talk about that too much <laughs> at the moment. But yeah, uh, unfortunately, they got relegated a while ago, but hopefully they're back up. So I try to get over uh, when I can. Uh, but it's also an excuse that a lot of us, I've got about £10 with me over this for this trip. Uh, similar London Irish connections. So there's a few of us with court connections here. There's a few of us with Limerick connections. So they're playing Treaty tonight. 
I do know uh, the, the history with all the different entities of Cork uh, soccer yeah. over the years, uh, Fordsons and Evergreen and Hibs and Celtic and United and all the rest of it. So my old man always used to keep me advised of it. But, you know, I do, I do the best I can and hopefully we'll have an enjoyable night tonight. Did he, you say he tried to keep you abreast of what was going on there. Did he talk a lot about home? Did he talk a lot about Cork as you were growing yeah, up? Yeah, yeah. But he, he's from the inner city um, and he he loved sport uh, in general. So he was a GAA man, but he was also a stocker man, which was difficult in those times. You weren't allowed to be. So he used to talk about the bands a lot, but he used to, they used to use assumed names to play soccer. But he also liked cricket, strangely, because he used to watch cricket up on the Mardike when he was a youngster back in the 30s, because Cork's always been a famous sporting uh, city and he used to tell me about the swimming clubs and the rowing clubs and all that. So Mm. it was a great uh, culture of sport. He loved it. Uh, Your parents were obviously very keen to keep their Irish identity intact. How how did they pass that on to you? Well, they didn't have to do much because the part of London I'm from is um, Paddington and Kilburn, as he used to call it, County Kilburn. Mm. And that whole West London area, I don't know much you know about London, but it's full of... Irish people from the 20s, 30s, and there was a big migration in the 50s and 60s. So we all went to Catholic schools, primary and secondary schools. There were three Lynches in my class, four McCarthy's, four Malone's, O'Brien's <laughs> everywhere, Ryan's oh, wow. coming out of my ears. So, yeah, on this trip, I'm with, you know, people from that background. Uh, and it was chock-a-block full of Irish people. There were lots of other people as well. We lived in a working-class communities on council estates and so forth. You didn't have to try hard because being in that culture was just what you were. And that's what we did. So a lot of us support Republic of Ireland, go to the away games from London. Uh, over the decades, we follow Ireland and everything, really. Tiddly winks to rugby to whatever. I've even been to watch the Ireland cricket team back in the day when it wasn't, <laughs> when it wasn't fashionable. <laughs> anything to watch, to watch Ireland play something. You mentioned that council estate that you grew up on, but before that, you were born in rented rooms. I've heard you use the word slum to describe those. What are your, do you have any clear memories at that time? Well, I, I was a baby, but my, I'm the youngest of five. So, you know, it was, it was quite a thing in, in, in Britain, in London at those times, for people to be living in private rented rooms where you might have a couple of rooms and shared bathrooms with other families. But people were glad to get into council housing with a private bathrooms and a bit of a kitchen and all that. It was that was seen as progress back in those days, and it was progress for a lot of people. You know, I'm very proud of the background I've got. My mother and father turned out five good kids, and so did all the neighbours. You know, there's a few problems in these areas, and there always will be. But most working class people do a good job of bringing their kids up in these environments. And uh, there was a lot of community. There was a lot of Irish people on those estates, but there were a lot of English people, good people. There was a lot of Afro-Caribbean people and people from all sorts of backgrounds uh, living there. It was a real uh, melting pot and everybody rubbed along with each other, really. And that's the, that's the background I'm from. So, um, you know, many of my peers are black working class people, Italian working class people, whatever. There's a very strong migrant culture, but the English working class people were very tolerant as well of all these cultures and let people get on with it, really. Could you tell us, Mick, how you ended up, if not quite ended up, where you are today, the start of that course of where you ended up? What type of work did you do after school, for example? Yeah, so I left school in 1978 and did an apprenticeship as an electrician in uh, a manufacturing company that used to make machinery. And then uh, Mrs. Thatcher closed down engineering in Britain for, to, mm-hmm. to a large extent. So you had to, I had to go uh, contracting, doing contracting work, working in construction sites. And so I was inculcated to be in the, in the union uh, from the age of 16. And then you get more active as you, as you get on and get more 
articulate and learn a few things, I suppose. And so it was always in my heritage to be in the union. My my dad was a shop steward. Uh, he worked in construction and engineering. And so, you know, he was a Labour Party member over there. And my sister's a big Labour Party activist. We were always in unions. It's just what we did. It was For us, it was the same as going to Mass. Being a, being a union activist is the same as being a, from West London. It was just what, what we did. And uh, so I just grew more into it and became more active. And eventually people vote for you standing for office in certain things. So I came on the railway in the 90s because uh, I was blacklisted from construction and uh, I had to join a new union and, and brought it from there. Just so you... And now I'm the general secretary. So it's all a, an accident of fate or something. <laughs> you, you mentioned a throwaway line there that you got blacklisted. I mean, I know that was only confirmed years later, but you knew it at the time. Did you? How, how did you know something was amiss in those years? You do know it because I was a branch secretary of the union in, in London, electrician's union, where you used to get work because I was a contractor. So you did jobs finished, you got another job, got, went for another firm. And I just wasn't getting it. So everyone knew that there was a blacklist. You just couldn't prove it. But so I decided to change and go into engineer into the railways where there was less of that going on because the railways have always had unions. And they're not as bothered by it. So I swapped sector, if you like. Uh, and then years later, there was a raid on an office when the Data Protection Act and all those came in, you know, these um, information commissioner's offices, it's called in England. They wrote to me saying, your name is on a blacklist. It literally is there on a blacklist. And they yeah. sent me copies of it. I was quite lightly blacklisted compared to some activists. There were many Irish activists in the construction trade in Britain that were blacklisted for their whole lives. And it blighted their lives. And it was a, it's a national disgrace, really, over there. It was legal in the sense that it wasn't illegal. There was no law about it at all. And then the, it was only the data protection laws, which are about computers that expose this stuff, you know, how, they, how people handle your data. Mm -hmm. And they were keeping data on people's political views on their trade union activities uh, for decades, some of them. You know, some really good people had to leave construction or just found themselves with long periods of unemployment. And it's, it was terrible, really, for some of them. It broke some people, ended marriages and all that, because you can't get work when other people can, which makes you look a bit odd. Uh, if you're a crafts worker and you can't get a start, there's something wrong. You said that you, you swapped sectors. Um, there was, I suppose, another option there, which is that you could have just pulled the plug on your union activities. And maybe that's a reaction that a lot of people would have had that, OK, this is what's getting me in trouble. Was that ever an option for you, did you think? Well, the idea, the idea was well, I would never not be in a union. Um, it's just not in my DNA. But when, when, on the, when I went on the railway, I said to my wife, Mary, that I'll just keep a low profile for a bit. But it didn't work out like that because we had to start the union because the railways were being privatised. The gift of the gab took over, I suppose, because I started recruiting other people into the union. And if you see a ball, you ought to kick it sometimes. There it is, even though, <laughs> if you don't want to. So that's, that's what I did. And now I've ended up uh, as the general secretary. Is it correct, Mick, that the compensation check that you eventually received hangs on the wall in your office? Yeah, it does. Yeah, because we why? took well because it's just a little memento. So does the the letters from the people and letters from various employers getting rid of me, and some of the the entries from the blacklist itself. We just put put them in a little frame to to remember it, really. But some people didn't get compensation and many people that had been blacklisted uh, died before because it went on for decades. It went on from 1919 up until the 2000s um, and many people didn't get to ever win out or hear that their problems were a blacklist. So 
it's just something to to keep there, you know, to remind you of other times in your life. Have you changed much as a person, do you think, since those early days in terms of your worldview, your beliefs? I think the beliefs are the same. I've always believed in a fair society. I want a redistribution of wealth, you know, um, between the rich and the poor. I want everybody to have a good education. I want good council housing or corporation housing or, or whatever. I want our elder people to be treated properly in retirement and have a decent income and get the care they need. I, my stuff is basically, you know, social democratic on the sort of Northern European Scandinavian stuff. Unfortunately, in Britain, that has to be fought for because it's so we've got such a radical right wing government and have had for many decades, really. Um, and I think it's going worse in this current selection that they're doing in the Conservative Party. I think we're going to take a real turn to the right. So stuff that would be consensus in in many parts of Europe, in Britain, you have to fight for it in quite an assertive way, which is what we're doing at the minute. We're only, I mean, our struggle at the minute is a defensive struggle against mass redundancies and pay cuts and to keep the services up. And uh, we can't let that go. But that seems to be resonating right now in Britain and Ireland, um, from what I can see. And I think there's a turning point in our, in our society where people are saying, well, I seem to be getting ripped off. So I'm, I'm probably a bit more considered than when I was 21 or 22, I should think, because I've got more responsibilities personally and and in the organisation that I uh, am heading up. So, yeah. Yeah, I've also heard you say you're more tolerant as well. Well, I try to be tolerant. I mean, you have to learn, don't you? I mean, I've got... Personally, you go through a lot of change. I mean, Ireland's changed radically, especially in the last decade, with people being able to express their identities and get freedoms to get divorces and women to be in charge of their own bodies and all that kind of stuff. And that's all happened in Britain. And you know, when I left school in 78, it was a very harsh... Uh, landscape for people with different identities if you were gay or from a different heritage it was a very harsh environment and we've all had to learn and my role is to be tolerant even things I don't understand I mean I said to somebody the other day I don't even understand tattoos I don't know why people <laughs> have to get themselves tattooed so if people want to have a different gender identity or different identity I you know I'm a very traditional person I'm a married man I've been married for a very long time I'm a regulation london geezer in that sense but i have got to just be tolerant and allow people to express themselves i can't hope to ever be to have experienced what a black person living in in british society is like but i've got to try and understand it and be empathetic and tolerate people's different religious beliefs or identity values or whatever that's what we ought to be doing but there's still a lot of intolerance to be honest a lot of it's hidden uh because you can't express it the way you you may be used to but I, i try to think i'm more tolerant than i was the message you've been putting out in the media over the last couple of months has clearly been striking a chord with people, Mick. Has that extended to Cork? Have people been recognising you there? Uh, yeah, there's been a few selfies. I've got a hat on. I'm trying to hide a bit. But there's a few people, um, you know, asking, are you Mick Lynch and all that? The, bar, the first bar I walked into, the barman said, are you Mick Lynch? And a few people are coming up to me. It's very nice that people want to say hello and they want to... They, it's, it's nice what they say. They're not just coming up and saying, oh, you're Mick Lynch. Can I have a picture? They're saying, keep on going. What you're doing is really... Uh, resonating with us and can you keep it up people have asked me to come back over and speak at various events which is all very good so I'm hoping to keep all that going you know but I'm very aware that your stock can be up one week and you can be very down the next week if something goes wrong or the tide turns against you a bit so I've got to get a deal for our members in these various disputes that we've got going on it's no good being a bit of a spokesperson but there's no you know there's no product for that for our members who are, who are sacrificing their wages and they have to stand out on the picket lines and you know and be strong uh 
despite hostile media and hostile pundits and sometimes hostile public. But we're very pleased with the reaction that we've had um, in Britain and internationally, including in Ireland. There's been a lot of people being in touch with us saying it's been inspirational and they want the same from their unions and from their politicians, really, because people are struggling in a lot of, lot of areas of society. They are, yeah. And I think you've, you've definitely touched a nerve. You've hit on something that's going on at the moment, I think. Well, just first of all, where does the dispute stand now with British Rail? There are more strikes set for this coming week, yeah? Yeah, so there's a, a strike, a national rail strike on Thursday and Saturday next week. And there's a strike on the London Underground, which is obviously a very important um, sector in London. That, there's a strike there on Friday. More people are joining into these disputes. Other unions are coming in uh, alongside us. And I think there's, there's going to be a big strike in the Postal Workers Union. 150,000 people are going out on strike in the postal service in Britain in the next few weeks. So there is definitely uh, things brewing. The teachers are going to have mass ballots. We've even got barristers uh, on strike in Britain at the moment. The Royal College of Nursing, which has never had a strike, they're going to be balloting. And even the doctors, the British Medical Association, are going to be balloting. So it's all happening. There's definitely a change in the mood and a change in people's intentions. The fact is people just haven't got enough money. Uh, with these utility bills, energy bills, you know, it's going to be five five or 600 quid a month just on energy. Something's got to be done. You've already told us there about how fickle these things can be and that you can be up one week and, and very much down the next. I mean, uh, there's already been some blowback to the strikes happening next week. People are saying that, you know, this is unlikely to be resolved while the Tory leadership contest is going on. So, so, so why strike now? Well, we've got to show that we're serious and we've got to show that we're, we're not dissipating or weakening in any way. We set these strikes out before the leadership contest came into view. You know, the government, somebody said, well, the RMT's brought the government down because we weren't on strike <laughs> and Boris Johnson was out. I think that's a bit of a, a bit of a reach for that connection. But the atmosphere in Britain at the minute is quite febrile in, in politically. We've got some really right-wing people coming to the fore, but they're only going to be elected by 160,000 members of the Conservative Party. So our next Prime Minister will be elected by an elite group of rich people in in many ways, while the rest of us have just got to watch it. So we can't back away. Disputes, you've got to keep the momentum in an industrial dispute. Uh, You know, we'll, we'll be negotiating next week. There are talks going on even now with some of our officials. And we'll, we'll look for a settlement, but there's not one in view at the moment. You said that we're approaching a turning point uh, a little earlier, uh, a feeling maybe that something bigger than obviously just the Railway Workers Union is happening in society, not just in the United Kingdom, but around the world. You know, you look at what's happened with Starbucks, you know, Amazon's efforts to unionise. Obviously, there is there is something brewing, even in the last kind of two years or five years, where people are realising perhaps the power of their work, of their labour. Well, exactly. I mean, all wealth in society is created by workers. There's not a wheel that turns. There's not a light that comes on. There's not a, a food item produced or bought without a worker doing that work. And the fact is that workers are not getting their share of the wealth that they produce. And there's been a lot of changes over the last 30 years that are really coming to fruition in some senses has come into decomposition because many people can't even get contracts of employment and I know that's true in Ireland it's really true in England with zero hours contracts no guaranteed wage for the work you do people are being forced to go freelance self-employed engaged in very strange uh, formats so you don't get sick pay you don't get holidays 
And that's all over. It doesn't matter whether you're in France or England or, or Ireland. That's becoming a thing that people find very unsettling. It's called precarious work or vulnerable workers. And I think people want to go back to the day where you give your, you know, you give your labour in return for a decent wage and a decent set of conditions. And if, if you get sick, they expect to be paid some sick pay. And that's being robbed of people. We used to have it in every sector, in, in virtually every country. And freelancing and self-employment was a minority activity, which was part of the market. But it's becoming very common. And I don't think people can plan their lives or plan their families on a basis where you don't know if you're going to have work, whether it's going to be secure and all the rest of it. And I think people are a bit tired of that, that regime. It's what we've been taught to do for the last you know, three or so decades. And I think that's a turning point that's coming. Plus, people haven't got enough money in their pockets. Uh, and we're on the edge, I think, where we could get a cliff edge recession. Mm. If the prices keep going up, people will stop spending. Interest rates are going up all over Europe. Wages aren't matching inflation and people will just stay in their houses and stop spending. And that could be a real mess for the economy if that happens. Do you see yourself, Mick, as having a potentially important role within this turning point that you described? Because as you said earlier, you're, you're, you're riding this wave of popularity. You've got this sudden fame, but that's not what it's about for you unless it leads to bigger things. And, and you know, in an immediate sense, that's obviously getting this deal for your workers. That's preoccupying your thoughts. But do you feel that that's that sits in this wider responsibility to push forward the entire labour movement now? I do. And I want other union, important union leaders and important unions and union activists and members to come forward in these campaigns. I think what we've got to do as unions is go back to working class com communities and put the trade union flag in there and force these politicians. We've got to make them come back to community values and community politics where you do actually rebuild tenants associations you have some sympathy with generation rent as they as they call it over in england where people have got these precarious uh, tenancies everybody's destabilized by all these buy to let properties and you can't you so you can't get a proper contract of employment but you can't even get a proper contract for your your housing that i think that's all got to change and it's coalescing around a few ideas so we've got uh, community unions forming in Britain that are not not to do with the world of work. And we've got to make sure we hook up with all those people, uh, with environmental campaigners, because we can see the effects of that all over the UK and Ireland at the minute, where we all seem to be basking in Mediterranean weather, which we've never expected. So it, there's a lot of campaigns to be linked up. And the politicians, the traditional politicians, don't seem capable of responding to this stuff in real time. And I think people are, are seeking real campaigns and real changes in society so i'm hoping that other people join in and i'm not i don't end up as an isolated hmm. uh, individual you know barking from the sides i'm aware that can happen so i want other people to come in and put their shoulders to the wheel really i'm confident that they will yeah it's really fascinating stuff mick we'll talk a little bit about where keir starmer and the labor party fit into this equation after the break and of course we will get down to the important business of your sporting career you're listening to mick lynch on second captain saturday Second Captains on RTE Radio 1 Sponsored by Audi Ireland Future is an attitude Second Captain, First Captain, whatever This is Second Captain Saturday with Owen and Murph We're chatting to Mick Lynch today The trade unionist who's become such a 
prominent voice in the labour movement and we've been talking about the role that you and your union are trying to play making driving forward conversations about how workers are treated in the UK why do you think politicians like Keir Starmer who you've criticised before why do you think they're so reluctant to play their part? I think they're too timid and they're too professional they these many of these people and it might be true over here as well live a life where they might get into student politics they leave they get a job in pr they then they go and work as a researcher for a, a td or an mp and then their life is a purely political uh, career basis and i think they lose touch with what's really going on and it's about having that career and if you look at liz truss she is the personification of that. She started as a liberal, liberal Democrat on the left of that party, as a Republican in Britain, would you believe, mm-hmm. to abolish the monarchy, and is now on the extreme right of the Conservative Party. And that is just an archetypal career for some of these people. I mean, Tony Blair, a very successful politician, but has never actually done a day's work in his life. He didn't even practice as a barrister, really. Uh, Gordon Brown, similarly, the former prime minister, never really existed outside of a political bubble. Rishi Sunak worked for a bank for a couple of years, but his life has been about being a politician. And that's a very strange environment. Uh, There's not enough people that have worked and struggled, even as a business person, to struggle to get a business started or as a trade union activist or as a single mother living, you know, in precarious conditions. They just don't know what the rest of us uh, have to go through. And they haven't really got a backstory, I don't think, which is a bit of a shame. So um, hopefully that will change. And different people with of different backgrounds, different identities, different heritages will, will come to the fore and will get a far better representation in any of the any of the forums, whether it's on your local council or in a national parliament or, or wherever. Politics has got to be a mixture of principles. So you, you identify with a particular set of values. So if you're meant to be some form of socialist, you'll believe in some of the things that I've set out about public ownership, decent wages, you know, uh, levelling up all the boats so that everybody rises together. Um, if you set that out, as, as values, which is what I think Starmer needs to do, the policies come along according to the needs of the day. You know, in particular policies in a particular couple of years, obviously they have to be ad- adjusted, but you don't move away from your principles, which, which are meant to underpin what you do. I mean, people find that in religious life or whatever, you've got to try and stay with your, your values f- philosophically without selling them out. But if you're somebody that's just moved from one end of the spectrum to the other, it's, it's, it's very difficult to say, well, that person is a person of integrity and integrity should be the bedrock of any political life. And I don't think we've got a lot of that at the moment. Has the leadership of the Labour Party contacted you at all to try to understand what you've tapped into, Mick? No, they worked with us. There was a scandal in Britain about the P&O uh, ferries where they sacked everyone. Yeah. Labour did some quite good work on that including Keir Starmer, but on the latest, the rail disputes and the what's going on in the Royal Mail in Britain, which is a major, major dispute. It's bigger than the one that I'm involved in. They, they don't talk to anyone. They're in a bunker somewhere trying to work out what they believe. And when they, when they, they won't come on TV and debate with people like in the, in the traditional way, you know, people put their views across. They will only do remote interviews down the line. They will only answer set questions and they won't tell anyone what they believe in. So there was a, a Labour front bencher the other day asked, would you consider public ownership of the energy industry? And she wouldn't answer the question. I mean, that is a fundamental principle. For me, the answer would be yes. 
and for the majority of people on the left in society, it would be, yes, I will consider it. They might then say, we have to work out how we're going to achieve it. Um, you know, I get that. But it would be a principle the same as, you know, a Republican has to continue to believe in a republic, you know, <laughs> whether it's in Britain, Ireland or or some other nation. If you're a monarchist, you don't say, well, I will consider the abolition of the royal family. You know, you've, got, you've got to believe in what your title is. Is the Labour Party simply being pragmatic, though? The way the British electorate is now, maybe the only way to get into power and to get anything done is by being a kind of Tory light. Is that the lesson we've, they've tried to learn over the last 15 years? I think that's at the heart of it. But if you're going to have Tories, you could have Tory light within the within the Tory party, couldn't you? I mean, uh, not everyone in the Tory party is a complete and utter whatever. I won't say that. But, um, you know, there are some liberal Tories. There are some what they used to call paternalist, one-nation Tories. So if you want to do that, why not form a Blamonge party in the middle that takes a bit of everything? But that's what the Liberals do. You know, that's what the the centre parties are there for. So if you want to be like that, go and join one of those. People are looking for a a Labour identity from a Labour party. The clue is in the name. And if you want to divorce yourself from the trade unions and from the working class, you should go and call your party something else. Mick, you mentioned that everyone's been, you've been having nice conversations while you're in Cork there, people telling you to keep it going and all that. As a matter of interest, has anybody asked you about Brexit by any chance? Yeah, people do ask me about Brexit. So um, do you want to ask me about Brexit? (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not surprised that maybe one or two people have pulled you up and asked you about it. So so effectively, what it is, is your union, the RMT, made uh, recommended to its members that they vote to leave the EU. So do you feel that's a mistake now? No, not at all. Um, The... What we were asked is, do, did we want to stay in the European Union? We weren't asked, how do you want to leave the European Union? If you get a divorce, there's lots of ways to do it. You can start cutting the heads off, off both partners. You can work out a civil way to do it. What we've had is a right-wing Brexit. But the problems at the heart of the European Union are still there. But was that not always going to be the case? Brexit was a, a Tory idea, basically a right-wing Tory idea. And the, the Brexit you might have hoped for was not going to happen. So therefore, it was a mistake to support Brexit in the first place. Well, it does come back to what your principles are, though, doesn't it? If your principles are that you believe in sovereign nations, such as Ireland and and Britain and France, you can't then vote for something that's going to cede your sovereignty to another power. So maybe the position in many states is they're happy to do that. But if you end up with the United States of Europe, which is where the European Union is going, and they say that openly, I don't think people ever voted for that. I don't think people voted for that in 1973 when Ireland joined and Britain joined. I don't think people voted for that really when the Lisbon and Maastricht treaties came through. But it went through because the professional political class in these nations wanted it to go through. France voted against it at one stage. So the European Union isn't always a happy place. I mean, its attitude towards migrants and towards refugees is not always that healthy. And I don't think fiscally when you're forced to do what Ireland and Greece and Italy were forced to do with their economies, it will always be a successful project. But we'll have to see. Mm. It could be a historical mistake. But we were asked a question based upon a principle, not based on what would the method and the outcome be. You've got your Irish passport anyway, Mick, so you don't have to worry about the queues at least. Well, I've had an Irish passport since 1977. So um, my Irish passport predates... Uh, the Maastricht Treaty in Lisbon and all the rest of it. So. <laughs> okay, we're going to turn to the sporting life of Mick Lynch now because you know the ranking system is coming up shortly, Mick. So let's try and build up some points. Was sport a major part of your life growing up? 
played a lot of sport at school, yeah, uh, school teams. We were always playing sport on the estate. Um, the Lynches were half a football team anyway, so we could always get a game, uh, a pick-up game. But I played primary school. Secondary school, we played rugby, which I wasn't all that keen on. Um, and then played soccer after. Played right up to I was in my 40s on Saturday afternoons with half the fellas that are over with me now. Very low standard, I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the fifth team in my club, but we did have our own clubhouse and bar, so there were some compensations. Was the GA a part of your sporting background at all? Uh, not really. I didn't do a lot of GAA. Um, I didn't do hardly any, but my kids do. Uh, my kids played for um, to Connell Gales in West London, and now the girls play have played for Father Murphy's, which is uh, another local team. So, yeah, we're, in, we're interested in GAA, but... We didn't get the opportunities to play it in the inner city as much. It was more of a sort of suburbs game in the Irish community. You've spoken about, uh, about James Connolly quite a lot in recent times, how big a hero he was. Any figures from the sporting world have any impact on you? Did you have Irish sporting heroes? Well, Ray Houghton is my biggest sporting hero. Because yes, uh, yes, he scored yes, the goal yes. in Stuttgart and in New York. Yeah, I was behind the goal in Stuttgart in 1988. I went to all the games. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Along with some of the boys on this trip. So um, we're reliving some of that. Yeah, I, we go to the Ireland games. But Ray Houghton was always a hero. I like Liam Brady. Um, Paddy Mulligan, Shamrock Rovers, was a big yeah. hero of mine when he signed for Chelsea back in 71. Um, Johnny Giles, of course, one of the best players that Ireland's ever produced, in my opinion. All those players are all heroes. I like Seamus Coleman at the moment. He's a big hero of my son. There was a, a conservative politician in 1990 called Norman Tebbett who came up with this, this Tebbett test, you know, which basically was uh, if you go along to Lourdes to the test match and you shout for India or Pakistan or the West Indies, that this is in some way a, a sign that this is kind of a, a, a community that has struggled to integrate into oh, if you, British society. if you've come from society. those countries, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. you're not uh, integrated, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, uh, I think that's a lot of nonsense. People have got the got the ability to make their mind. I mean, there's a, there's a pal of mine, one of my best mates here with Cork City Heritage. He supports England when England plays. He says, well, I'm born in England. I mm. support England, and then, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. The rest of us on this trip would normally support Ireland. But I'm not one of these people that says England's got to be done down, you know. I don't cheer every time England let one into France or whatever because, you know, these are ordinary working-class men and women. Um, in the Euros recently, the Women's World Cup, I thought the England team was very inspirational and I wanted them to win their games, and they did. So that's great. Four people of Irish heritage in that team, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm not, you know, it's a bit of a mixture. I always want Ireland to win. I want them to beat England. But I'm not one of these that says England's got to lose. I just think that's too negative. Yeah. If people were living in Ireland of whatever, uh, of English heritage or Nigerian heritage, and a lot of them are coming through into the Ireland teams, if they want to support their parents' team, of course they would. You know, if the same as if you're living in Dublin and your parents are from Kerry. You're going to be cheering Kerry maybe when they're playing Dublin because mm. that's where you, you know, people take these things too seriously in some ways. You're honouring your your heritage, aren't you, when you're cheering on a green shirt, whether it's a Pakistani shirt or a, an Ireland shirt. The weird thing about the Teba test, I suppose, is that it, maybe it's easier for you to to assimilate as a white man with a London accent and you support Ireland anyway. Like, there's there's also, I suppose, the, the idea that you went to Catholic school, you were surrounded by Lynch's and McCarthy's and O'Shea's and all the rest, but then entering the workplace, there's, like, a, a different mix then. How did people react to the idea of you supporting Ireland 
in the workplace. Well, not, well, not all of them were keen on it, I've got to say, going back those days in the late 70s and the 80s, and there was a lot of stuff going on in the north of Ireland and there were bombs going off in London. It wasn't all that easy, but I've got to say, I mean, there was racism against Irish people, isn't but it was never as serious as it is towards black people. I've got, you know, you, you, that's just got to be stated because it is easier to blend in, not if you've got, you know, a very pronounced accent or whatever, but for me, Mm. A lot of people just assume I'm some other kind of Londoner or whatever, which I am. I am a Londoner with an Irish identity. And there's, but there's plenty of black and Italian and Spanish Londoners and Asian Londoners who who have the same outlook. I mean, if, you, if you've got two parents from Jamaica and, and the West Indies are coming to play cricket against England, you don't think they're just at all Donna St. George's flag. They're going to support Jamaica. But when England are playing Germany at soccer, they'll probably be supporting England. Because mm. there's a load of people from the same heritage playing for the England side. So I think people have got to be a bit less uptight about it. It's not, you know, we're not at war when you play football. It's great to win, but, you know. Are you currently playing any football, Nick? Oh, I'm far too old. I couldn't cope with that. No. I, I played football about five years ago in just a kick around and my knees suffered for a week <laughs> after. So it's too, it's too dangerous. Well, tell us then one final question before we put you on the leaderboard. This could be the most important of the lot because we need an all-time highlight from your own sporting career now, not from any of these Irish sporting performances you've witnessed. Your your own highlight. Well, I'll give you one. It's a highlight and a low light at the same time. So um, we played, yeah, our fifth team played in the cup final about maybe 15 years ago. I can't remember the date. And we were losing 2-1 in the last minute. And we got a last-minute equaliser. And we had the majority of supporters there. We had about 100 fellas on the sidelines swigging beer and whiskey and whatever, cheering us on. And uh, we were so delighted we're getting this equaliser in the last minute, we forgot to defend and they scored the winner <laughs> about 25 <laughs> seconds after we'd finished celebrating oh, no. our draw. And that was, but it was a great day. There was a lot, of, there was a lot consumed as a yeah. result of that. So it was one second of uh, glory. And then uh, a lifetime of regret, having lost <laughs> the, the whatever it was, the fifteen Challenge Cup in the West London League, or whatever it was. But I my mean, best moment in sport is Ray Houghton in Stuttgart. I've got to say that. I've got to get that on the record. Got to be on the record. Okay, you've impressed us with your sporting heroics, but you've impressed me anyway. But I'm not the one who counts because it's Murph who's going to do the business here. Murph, could you please now rank this sporting life of the brilliant Mick Lynch, please? You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, Mick, I've balloted the members of the adjudicating panel. That's me and no one else. Mm. And the time has come for me to assess your all-time sporting highlight. Pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements and then present you with a score out of 100 to discover if you can be crowned our top non-sports person sports person for 2022. After three weeks of white-knuckle action, Nick Hornby still sits proudly atop our leaderboard on 80 He's points. Arsenal, you can't be top. <laughs> <laughs> he got there, uh, Mick, though, uh, courtesy of some negotiation slash bullying skills that would be the envy of any proud trade unionist. So there is that at least <laughs> your heartbreak in that cup final, conceding late on to lose 3-2, is a story that will stoke my nightmares for many days to come. But your valiant efforts in defeat remind me of nothing more than another great left-winger taken down 3-2 despite vastly superior ability. That's right, Brazilian midfield maestro at the 1982 World Cup, defeated 3-2 by Italy, Socrates, a man who, when asked for his heroes, once replied, John Lennon and Che Guevara. (laughs) Many, many marks won for supporting the Ireland football team before it was even fashionable to support them in Ireland, let alone in England. 
for your love of Cork City and for slapping down Piers Morgan in the most public fashion possible. <laughs> we have to mention it. Uh, Mark's reduced, however, for a shameful lack of dedication to honing your Gaelic football skills. With, yeah. Uh, Chirconnell yeah. Gales or whichever one was most local to you back in the 1970s. Taking all in all, and with uh, due diligence performed on all my machinations, it's my pleasure to give you 77 points. It's been a pleasure spending some time in your company this weekend. Mick Lynch, this has been your sporting life. Uh, and I'll tell you what, Mick, we've never done this before, but I know you were, you were a bit of a punk back in the day. Is there any, any tune you'd like to pick something from that era for a final song today? It's the least we can do, because I think, I think you should have scored more points there. So is there any- It's got to be the undertones, Teenage Kings. Perfect. All-time heroes. Brilliant stuff, Mick. We'll, we'll let you get back to your mates there. Thanks so much. Yeah, take care. He chose his tune pretty well. We threw that at him and Mick was straight in with teenage kicks there by the undertones on second captain Saturday. 77 points. Murphy is at second spot. Ugh. You wouldn't have given him a couple of extra points for conducting the interview from outside a League of Ireland boozer having a pint with fellow Cork City fans, no? Well, for me. Yeah, maybe I could have taken that into account. But listen, the number is the number at this stage. <laughs> Whatever about uh, being bullied while the guest is on the line, I'm not going to get bullied after the the interview's finished. I think that's yeah. just too fair. I just love the image of people in a pub in Cork walking up to the bar past a partially disguised Mick Lynch. Is that your man, Mick Lynch? Nah, couldn't be. He's wearing a hat. Mm. Couldn't be. <laughs> we'll just leave him alone. So, absolute pleasure having Mick on the show. Hope you enjoyed that chat. As I mentioned earlier on, our conversation with Mick was pre-recorded ahead of Cork City's match last night. Since we had that chat, an interview with Mick came out in the New Statesman where he made some controversial comments about the EU provoking some of the trouble in Ukraine. Now, these comments have caused quite a stir and we obviously would have discussed that with him if the quotes had been out there at the time we chatted to him, but it wasn't to be. Murph, this Teba test you mentioned sounds grim, by the way, Murph. The measure of how much you've assimilated into a culture is just whether or not you cheer for the national team of the country or where you came from. Ugh. Norman Tebbit came up with the cricket test in 1990, as I was saying there, in an interview with the Los Angeles Times. A large proportion of Britain's Asian population failed to pass the cricket test. Which side do they cheer for? It's an interesting test. Are they still hacking back to where you came from or where you are? Uh, but like all right-thinking individuals, uh, Mr. Tebbit's thinking evolved, and he'd come round to this mode of thinking by 2014. One test, another test, one test I would use is... Those is tests. Yeah. Uh, is to ask them on which side their fathers or grandfathers or whatever fought in the Second World War. And so you'll find that the Poles and the Czechs and the Slovaks were all on the right side. And so that's a pretty good test, isn't it? Perhaps we could even manage to teach them to play cricket gradually over the years. So uh, say what you like about his views on immigration. But the man really, really did love cricket, <laughs> didn't he? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there are other it's ways. Just... I'm sure there are many people who have integrated perfectly into British society by Norman Tebbit's rule and didn't play cricket at all. 
That's it for today. This has been a Second Captain's production for RTE. The show was produced by Killian Down. Our thanks to Johnny Lanagan and Elizabeth Largy in RTE. Mark Horgan is a series producer for Second Captains. You can hear us through the week, Monday to Friday at secondcaptains.com. Stay tuned to RTE Radio 1 for the latest Doc on One coming right up. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Second Captains on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude.